Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Which brings us to tonight's event, uh, which we are thrilled to be hosting, and not just because tonight's author is my mom. Um, Deborah Reed's latest novel, The Days When Birds Come Back, is a study in contrasts, haunting while mesmerizing, visceral yet lyrical. It is a deeply felt and humane work that examines grief and love with an unflinching eye. Carolyn Levitt called it blindingly beautiful, and Christy Coulter called it uh, as misty and heart-stopping as the Oregon coast, and one of the most complex and relatable portraits of a recovering alcoholic in memory. Deborah Reed is the author of four novels, Olive, Things We Set on Fire, and Carry Yourself Back to Me, in addition to um, The Days When Birds Come Back. She holds an MFA from Pacific University and is co-director of the Black Forest Writing Seminars at the University of Freiburg in Germany. She lives on the Oregon coast and teaches creative writing at workshops around the United States and in Europe. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Deborah Reed. That is just so surreal. I can't. Just what a what a world. Um, thank you, Dylan, and thank you all for coming. Um, this is a really sweet evening for me, and not just because my two children are here. Um, it's just so great to see you all and to be back here again and um, and to share this book with you that I, I wrote um, as soon as I moved away from here. So it kind of encapsulates my my life um, since since I lived here. So I'm going to read a bit and then feel free to ask me questions. Um, I'm going to start... I'm not going to start with the first chapter because it's a bit long and the novel has two main characters, June and, and Jameson. So um, I'm, go- I'm going to just give you a little bit of what happens in the first chapter, and I'm going to read chapters two and three. That way you'll get um, a June chapter and a Jameson chapter. So in the opening chapter, we learn that June is, she's just returned from living in Ireland for 12 years, and she was married to an Irishman, and she's now divorced. She's also a recovering alcoholic, and she has been sober for 30 days. Um, She grew up on the coast of Oregon, between these two houses, uh, side-by-side Sears Kit homes that her grandfather built, and um, we learn that her grandparents have since passed away, and she needs to renovate this the bigger house, the bungalow, to sell. And she gets the name of a contractor, but every time she calls him and he answers, it's a landline, he, it, she hangs up. She can't bring herself to actually get, go through with fixing the house up and selling it. Um, and she lives in the cottage next door where um, she lived with her father until he uh, committed suicide when she was seven by 
um, walking out of the cottage into the bungalow, out the front door, and over the cliff. So they live on an old logging road um, into the into the Pacific Ocean. Um, before he committed suicide, he left her this camping blanket at the foot of her bed, and that that um, figures into the story as we go. So when the story opens, she's laying in her backyard. Um, uh, topless, sunning, and her property, the property is surrounded, it's okay Victoria, come on, <laughs> he's right here, <laughs> um, the property is, um, it's a lot of very rural acres, and um, so there's nobody around, but um, behind the property, there's a row of trees, and beyond that, is a golf course, and that factors into the story too. So nobody can really see her as she's laying out there. Um, okay, what else? Um, oh, she's um, before she left Ireland, she packed up a, a few boxes of her things, and they've since been lost um, uh, as they were shipped um, to her. So she's still waiting for all of these things to show up, and. Um, uh, her ex-husband's name is Niall, and we learn at the very end of that first chapter that for the first time in a year, he has called her. So I'm going to start with chapter two, and um, this is a Jameson chapter, and he lives in eastern Oregon, but he travels to do this work, like a migrant worker. Evening arrived in their high desert acres in eastern Oregon without a chance for Jameson and Sarah Ann Winters to settle into lamplight, have a meal, and watch the news. At first they'd held off preparing dinner, thinking the boy would wake at any moment, but three hours passed and he was still face down on the sofa where he'd cried himself to sleep. He hadn't had lunch or been cleaned up in any way. His feet, hands, and face were smeared red and black from tripping in the strawberry patch at the side of the house after he'd hit the ground running. He'd sat in the damp soil and cried while bees floated near his sweaty face and hair. He dug his heel into the patch and shrieked when Jameson tried to come near. Their confidence was slipping. Soon it would be bedtime. Should they carry him to his room in this shape and tuck him in for the night? He clearly needed rest, they said, gazing from the living room doorway. The poor boy, they said. On this, they solidly agreed. His 16-year-old mother, Melinda, had been shooting heroin in a convenience store bathroom at the start of her labor, and the clerk, an 18-year-old boy who graduated from the same high school Melinda had dropped out of, tired of waiting for her to come out and busted in. Then he tired of waiting on an ambulance and locked the glass entry doors and drove Melinda 14 miles to the ER. She named her baby Ernest because the boy had a book by Ernest Hemingway on the dashboard of his car and she held it in her hand as he drove and was holding it still when the nurses wheeled her in. She called the baby Ernie, like a stuffed toy one could leave on a bed for days. Now he was two and for the past 12 months he'd been in foster care with Jameson and Sarah Ann. After all this time, they should have a feel for what to do. After all this time, they shouldn't have days like they had today. Not true, Sarah Ann said. She called that wishful thinking, said no one was going to be served by that, and could Jameson please pass her the broom? A short while earlier, Jameson had 
imagined fever in the boy's bright cheeks while he slept, but his forehead felt cool and moist and soft. The child was simply worn out, and his face, coated with the sticky sheen of dried tears, held a beauty that occupied Jameson, a strange blessing that had stalled him, crouched and staring at the small mouth and swollen eyelids and the tiny spiral of his ear. Maybe the smell of hash browns will wake him, Sarah Ann had whispered, and Jameson tilted his head as if listening for some other voice, but he took the hint. Hash browns were a household favorite, and dinner needed to be made. It'll be ready in about 45 minutes, he said, walking past her, and it sounded as, as if he were giving her a hint, implying that she figured this thing out by the time he put food on the table. And then he guessed that that was what he meant, but wished he hadn't meant it, so he stepped back and kissed her on the cheek to soften what he'd said and how he'd said it, but he could see she knew all about that kiss and barely raised her face to meet his lips. When he began cooking up their breakfast for dinner, he no longer cared for the idea and was pretty sure Sarah Ann didn't either. They'd received another crank call this morning on the kitchen phone. People who knew them didn't call that phone, and of course they wouldn't hang up if they did. Jameson's best guess was Melinda. Maybe she was trying to scare them. Maybe she had something to say but kept losing her nerve. This morning, Sarah Ann heard breathing on the line. Shadows had sloped across the cabinets and oven where earlier in the evening Jameson had leaned into his hip. The crooked feel of his bones, especially his left leg, added to the distraction. He'd been lost in thought with a cold egg in his hand, the desert air drifting through the screen and chilling the back of his neck. If the boy was dreaming, what might those dreams turn out to be? Maybe that first year of his life had vanished from memory. Maybe it continued to haunt him in his sleep. Jameson knew how the past could rise up inside the walls of a dream and fill the body with an urgent confusion with all the markings of a real and merciless now. How could a child be expected to understand that what he saw wasn't happening again when a grown man with logic and defenses could be jerked from his sleep by his own screams? Three years after the worst days of his life, Jameson's feet still might swing to the floor in the middle of the night, eyes wide and hands pressed forward in the dark, until Sarah Ann's touch went from a threat on his shoulder to a woman's fingers guiding him back beneath the sheets, a woman slowly shifting from a stranger into, into the shape of his wife, someone he had loved for the better part of 12 years. The boy was slight for his age. His arm dangled above the floor as he slept. His fist twitched near his soft blanket, tucked and hanging from beneath his neck. Every now and then, he slugged the sofa cushion. Jameson cooked hash browns and cheddar omelets and ready-baked biscuits with Sarah Ann's homemade strawberry jam while Sarah Ann picked up the mess of the day throughout the house, sweeping the dried grass and dust trailed in on Jameson's work boots, for which he apologized and she waved off, saying the whoosh and scratch of the broom calmed her nerves. When dinner was ready, they took quiet care, scooping it onto plates and into bowls, the melted cheddar escaping the folds of each omelet, stringing cheese from dish to dish. They placed the boy's empty plate in front of his equally empty snap-on high chair, just in case, and his small fork and spoon there too. 
Steam rose from the food at the center of the table, and Sarah Ann reached for Jameson's hand, laid hers on top of his, and each offered the other a small, defeated smile, like a prayer, before lifting their forks. They ate, setting silverware gently against stoneware, swallowing slowly as if the sound of their throats might wake the boy, though they wanted more than anything to wake him. We look feeble, Jameson thought, thin and sapped and frail as 50 years from now. They were 35 years old, with spring birthdays two months apart. They ate what they could, and then they cleared the table and began washing dishes, taking turns, peeking into the living room. Jameson leaned next to Sarah Ann at the sink and asked if it wasn't better to keep soap off the iron skillet she was washing. She blinked as if coming to, set down the bottle of dish soap, and thanked him for noticing. He reached for the skillet, and with it, her hand. He said, you can go rest in there with him if you want. I don't think I could, she said. Rest, I mean. She slid her fingers from beneath his, but you can wash the skillet if you want. His mind had wandered while cooking the hash browns, trailing the many things that had gone wrong by midday. He'd stared at the woolly sunflowers across the meadow, the sway of yellow petals still bright in the dusk, while thin strings of potato burned along the edge of the skillet, encrusted so deeply it appeared to have been soldered to the iron. Now he was scouring with the arm of a man capable of rebuilding a house, and still the black scabs remained. He eyed the dish soap, let it be, and then eyed it again, wanting only to accomplish this one simple thing. When Sarah Ann turned to open the fridge, Jameson squirted a shot of blue soap onto the edge of the skillet. He went at it with a steel brush, and this time the flakes broke free. She was teaching the boy that it was all right to sleep and eat and play when he wanted those things. She was teaching him to perceive his own needs. It was all right to leave him on the sofa like that. It was. Jameson and Sarah Ann only ever called the boy Ernest. They liked to say, why so serious, Ernest? Because it made them smile just enough while greeting sorrow head on. But Jameson continued to think of him as the boy, a changeling who'd come to live with them, a substitute for the real child who'd lost his place in their home. This boy could sleep for long hours in the daytime. This boy's deeply red mouth was often puckered in quiet like an old man gathering answers from the corners of his mind. This boy was unnaturally angelic, round-faced with immense brown eyes. This boy was slightly lovelier in looks than Jameson's own children had been, and he hated himself for thinking such things. He and Sarah Ann had stood over him, wondering what to do today, but it wasn't like they didn't know how to parent. Parenting wasn't new. Until three years ago, Jameson and Sarah Ann understood just what to do with a child, with two children, with twins. Oh, they're twins, everyone said, especially in summer on the beach, surrounded by tourists who didn't know them. Boy and girl, twins, they'd say, like a joyous discovery. For the entirety of their short lives, seven years to be exact, Piper and Nate had remained polite about being on curious display. They were courteous when told how identically they resembled each other, said thank you and smiled as if they'd never heard it before, grinned as if it were a compliment, and in truth it was. 
There were times when it had pained Jameson to see the love the twins had for each other. To look directly at it was like looking into a fiercely bright light not meant for the eyes. The soft sound of their voices in the next room, the giggling they sparked in each other, was like listening to a beautiful piece of music with the volume turned way too high. That undercurrent of blazing affection was not of this world, and he could never say this to anyone, especially not now. Certainly, he could never say this to Sarah Ann. Chapter 3 June's cutoffs were short, very short, practically underwear, the only strip of clothing that marked her skin when she woke 20 minutes later in the sun. She peeled back the waistband to see the burnished tan line across her belly. She was becoming browner by the day. What if I was wrong, Niall had asked on the phone last week. June almost didn't answer when she saw who was calling. And what if you were wrong too, he said. This morning, June filled the bird feeders in the front and back of the house with millet for the chickadees and sunflower seeds for the nuthatches, and even with her eyes closed, she knew which birds had arrived by their songs. Granddad had taught her to pay attention. Aside from the houses, June had kept very little of her family's belongings. She was trying to make her life her own, shaving off pieces of the past in exchange for the larger whole of the present. She'd kept the braided living room rug in the carriage house, soft wool in the greenish white of spindrift, its oval shape like a pond in the center of the room. She added a charcoal colored love seat to the two leather chairs, and the furniture appeared to float along the edge of water when the glow of summer sun saturated the walls by late afternoon. As a child, June often anchored herself to the spiral at the center of the rug and read a book the same small swirl where her father spread out maps. Several nights ago, she sat there while reading Granddad's field notes. Thirty elk arrived today and took refuge in the post office parking lot, causing a stir for the locals and their dogs. The bluebells rose to the sun on this third day in March, 1971, a glory that has lightened the mood. Overcast and the last of the Canada geese are headed south, their final calls echoing from sky-high arrows that broke my heart until Maeve set the house to smelling of roast and garlic stew. Pay attention, Granddad used to tell her. The trees and the birds and the orb weaver know as much as we do about this world, if not more. When she'd hung up with Niall, the desire to jump into her father's old truck and head to the liquor store in Wheeler was difficult to calm. Reading Granddad's notes had only made it worse. She could practically hear her grandparents slancha and see their tumblers of beautiful brown whiskey on the porch during long summer evenings and by the fire during the winter when the sun set early and the days were unbearably short. I'm sober, June had said to Niall, nearly a month. What do you make of that? That's grand, June. You sound wonderful. Are you happy? You sound quite happy. June opened her eyes to the yard, shielded the sun with her hand as the sudden frenetic flood of golden-crowned kinglets rushed in like small leaves scattering through the Douglas fir. It was that time of day, the air filling with their thin, boisterous song as they picked the cones clean. 
June's father had mastered their cheeps, calling them into the yard within a foot of June if she and her father remained still. Tiny bright crowns lifted off their heads like flames. Whether the song imitated calls for mating or declared a territorial war, June couldn't remember or perhaps had never known. The goal of every living thing is to stay alive, her father once said. Her grandparents spoke Irish when they were alone, and their melodic voices sifting from the next room caused a knot in June's chest, something felt but not understood, at least not then, not until 12 years ago when she decided to study Irish literature in Ireland, met Niall, became a writer, and made a life for herself in the very county her grandparents left behind so long ago. All those details in Granddad's little books, an example of what it was to be a pupil of life itself, devoted to making sense of the world and beyond making sense to no purpose at all except to sit with the wonder of it. Write it down, he used to tell her, then you'll know what it means. The camp blanket was one of the first things June unpacked from the airtight cellar that Granddad built to the right of the carriage house's back door. The blanket was of 1960s vintage with a fleecy pattern of pink, green, and orange diamonds on one side, a solid canvas, canvas green on the other. And if June had to choose what she loved most about the things she kept, she'd say the blanket. She'd say the notebooks. She'd say her mother's artwork. She'd say that nothing quite compared to the bungalow. It's three bedrooms and large dining room with the heavy pocket doors sliding out of the living room wall, the large French doors opening onto the garden, and the spread of white trees had always been enchanting and dreamy, especially compared to the moody, complicated rooms of the carriage house. A week before her father died, a flurry of life took over the carriage house, a chaos of cleaning and making plans. Her father purchased a Polaroid camera for June and took her on the only trip they would ever take from their map of circles, though it ended the second day in the high desert when her father began speaking to her with eyes closed while driving. The truck lurched into a ditch and the axle snapped in two. June's top front baby teeth, already loose, were knocked out when her mouth collided with the dash. Granddad and Grandmam arrived hours later and got the truck fixed. They wrapped June in the camp blanket and everyone was quiet, speaking only of the axle, nothing of the cash Granddad handed to the tow driver and mechanic, nothing of June's bloody lip and missing teeth. On the way home, June rode with Granddad in his truck. Grandmam drove her father behind them in his, and June glimpsed their dulled faces in the side mirror when the light was right. They didn't appear to speak at all in the hours it took to get home. Up front with Granddad, the conversation ranged from desert rabbits and birds of prey to the way Americans cut their food with the side of their fork. Granddad lisped his brogue in a show of solidarity with June's missing teeth, and June laughed against the golden sunset, her Polaroid beside her, while eating cup after cup of vanilla pudding from the shop-and-go, where they'd filled both trucks with gas. It helped to think about other things. The bungalow was twice the size of the carriage house and severely neglected. The life eaten out of it during its abandonment 
though it could have been much worse if grandmam and granddad hadn't taken such excellent care of it for decades. They'd taken care of everything, including each other, until the last moments of their lives. June had entered the bungalow twice now, once to make sure the windows were closed, once to open them again. She disrupted the moths, caught her hair in the orb weaver's web, swiped dead houseflies from the windowsills as the windows went up and again when they came down. She stood face to face with a chipmunk on the kitchen counter who looked at her and flicked its tail in a gesture of defiance. I am a thousand times your size, little man, June said, sounding like grandmam. The tiny creature scurried down the cupboard and along the baseboard into the living room. Enjoy the run of the place, June said. You'll be thrown from the manor soon enough. You'll be dead in a year if you don't stop drinking, her doctor had told her two years ago, but that wasn't enough. If the goal of every living thing was to stay alive, it had seemed that June was no longer a living thing. Some part of her had undergone a dull demise, and it took her sideswiping a child on his bicycle with her car a year later in the middle of an afternoon in County Carlow to shake June back to life. It took the terror in a boy's glassy blue eyes, his bleeding elbow and torn jeans as he lay beneath the twisted spokes and cracked frame, looking up at June for her to finally feel the hot jolt of resurrection. I was in the lane, the boy said, shivering, stuffing back tears as she reached for him. I didn't do anything wrong, he repeatedly told her, and June understood that when he got home, he'd face a scolding for being careless and unworthy of the gift he'd been given by disciplined and long-suffering parents. You're not broken, she said, though what she'd meant was to ask if anything was broken. He shook his head no. She trembled, handing him all the money in her wallet, 230 euros. You're a good lad, she said, or wanted to say, but couldn't get the words to leave her mouth. You've done nothing wrong, she said, for certain, and told him to go buy himself a new bike and clothes. It was then he began to cry, hard and silent with his chin to his chest, eyes closed over the notes in his hand, and June curled his fingers to keep the cash from being carried off in the wind. She stepped back and apologized again as she returned to her car, apologizing still as she watched the boy in her mirror, slowly pushing his bike down the sidewalk, his tears breaking with a freedom she knew he would reel in once he rounded the corner to home. Rather than driving off a cliff accidentally or with determined calculation, no matter, June had somehow arrived home and gathered up Niall's clothes for charity. She remained awake all night, piling her own things into boxes to be shipped. West was the direction of endings, and though she did not feel the shape of an actual plan, the image of the carriage house and its cedar scent, the familiar feel of its temperamental spaces was drawing her home. How is it then, being there without your grandparents, Niall had asked on the phone. It doesn't quite seem real. What's in bloom, he'd asked, which made everything seem real, and she told him about the iris and foxglove and yarrow she'd seen along the forest shore, and he said he could picture it perfectly. He said how fine it was for her to be there at the start of summer, like the day they were married in the backyard, and the golfers had agreed to remain quiet during the ceremony. Do you remember, he asked. 
I do, she'd said, and they shared a small laugh. The belongings she'd taken such care to hold on to were now missing, thanks to Victory International shipping, and yet she knew exactly where Niles had gone. When he departed, he took only what he could fit in one suitcase, and this stung as much as anything he might have come up with to punish her, though she did not think he was trying to. Even so, she understood enough to know that everyone was capable of grievous, despicable acts given the right circumstances. What he said was that he didn't want any of the possessions that had made up their life together, and she did not restrain herself from hurling insults at his back while his steps crunched the gravel driveway with an amplified sound. When she, dropped Niles, when she dropped off Niles' shirts, pants, and shoes at the Goodwill shop, it occurred to her that in time, people would be walking the streets wearing his clothes. And if she remained in Ireland much longer, she'd have seen Niall everywhere she went, which might have been enough to drive her fully round the bend, off a cliff, or falling down drunk on the kitchen floor. How did widows find the wherewithal to march their stalwart bodies to the charities and deliver the cottons and polyesters and denims that contain the scent and sweat and stains of their beloved men, only to come across them another day on the backs of strangers? An act of altruism, that was how June thought of it, how she struggled to think of it, even as her own husband had left at her request, a man still alive and well, making love to someone else the way he'd made love to her, or not. Perhaps he was discovering new and better ways of love-making in someone else's bed. Surely he must be doing that, the kind of thing that would keep a man from going back to his wife. It had taken a sort of courage to let fall his things from her arms because to stand up straight and turn her back had the feel of being trapped inside an airless room, lungs gasping for oxygen. Her father's rubber boots had remained in the mudroom for 21 days after his death, his razor and comb in the medicine cabinet for 17. Nell spoke of belongings as possessions. He was the first to say that word choice was no accident. Possessions as if these things had owned him, as if he'd been bewitched and bound to the place against his will. It was excruciating to hear when he said it, excruciating to recall his flat tone of voice, its quality of pure disdain. It took all she had to keep from shouting like a drunk that it didn't matter anyway because she knew she deserved to be left until she did shout and shout and shout and shout. It was confusing. June was confused. She had had five martinis in the course of the previous hour when things escalated. She threw her boot at his head on his way out the door and missed. She didn't say how relieved she was to see him go, but she was. When his car neared the road at the end of the drive, June shouted that she hoped he would live long enough to regret what he had done. She crouched as his taillights disappeared in the rain, wept quietly as vodka and bile rose in her throat. She remembered being on her hands and knees, then lying on the wet gravel, where she woke several hours later in the cold rain. She had woken late the following day on the sofa, her cheek still marked by the gravel, so deeply she could feel the grooves with her fingertips, feel a bruise there too. The same with her knees, 
After that, she passed out. When she woke the following morning, she did not realize what day it was until it began to get dark and she was trembling with fever. Vomit had dried on the front of her shirt. She glanced around, moving only her eyes, saw the lamp and books and a framed photo of herself and Nile knocked to the floor. The sofa cushions had been tossed wildly about and she lay half covered beneath them. She had done all of this in a fit of delirium after not having had a drink in what, 30, 40 hours? She'd risen very slowly, placed her feet gently on the floor. Her legs shook, all of her shook. Her tongue was glued to the roof of her mouth and she was soaked through with sweat. She had wet herself. She had shat herself. The stench alone was enough to make her sick. She could not stop shaking. She lowered her body to the floor and crawled in the direction of the shower. Each movement seemed like that of a crippled cat, every step forced and calculated against the corresponding throb of agony. She finally made it to the liquor cabinet, where she sat on her knees and caught her breath. This was not the time to quit drinking, not like this. She couldn't do it this way even if she wanted to, so she leaned her head against the wall and swallowed straight from the bottle, breathing harder through her nose as the liquid drenched her throat, her hand shaking so badly she repeatedly missed her mouth, and the bottle slipped and vodka poured down her legs and into the cuts on her knees. She snatched it up with a tempered rage, her mind slowly rousing as the drink set her system back to its fragile stasis. By the time the bottle was empty, she recalled with perfect clarity that the last thing she had said to Niall, that thing about hoping he'd live to regret what he had done, was the very last thing June's father had said to her. Thanks. Thank you. I sat Ah, well, I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, something cheery, I'm sure. <laughs> mm. well, yes. Um, okay. So, having read your other novels and really admired down the writing on a sentence level. Um, very beautiful and insightful and, and very clear. I'm, uh, I'm curious how you feel your writing has changed, if you feel it has, over the course of writing this Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, I think, well, I, th I feel like every novel is its own thing. It's its own living thing that requires different things of the writer. And... Um, this one in particular took a lot out of me um, because the, um, as you can tell, that everybody's suffering and they're suffering a lot. And um, it's a long time before the <laughs> suffering <laughs> comes to an end. So it becomes, I think, very very visceral for me to write it that way. Um, and I, I've heard from readers it's also very visceral to read it. Um, I, you know, this, this novel... Um, I think is different from my others um, in a way that there's a lot of backstory, and you know I'm used to 
as you know, like put it in scene, um, trying to keep um, a scene active and the momentum going. But what I had to do with this novel was to keep the past active because the, the, the both characters are mired in their past. They're being held down by them and uh, um, it isn't until they come together in the story when they finally meet because he does take the job and come eventually um, and is right next door to her throughout the summer. And it's the combination of the two of them that begins to unlock both of their stories and their pain. So, so much of the novel is the past and it's, it's, uh, it doesn't happen chronologically it's just kind of all over the place. It's June um, as a you know, the recent past of being divorced, and then June as a young child, and June as a teenager. And um, and for Jameson, it's um, it's slowly um, allowing the memory of what happened to his children to come up um, to the surface. And um, he lost his children in on the coast, so that is where he used to live. And so it's him making his way back there and facing his past. And June is doing the same thing for different reasons. And so um, I'd say that there's less in scene in this novel um, for the for the. I would say compared to any of my novels, and I purposely wrote it that way so that it feels like you're being dragged. And so by the time you get to all present, it's, um, I think the reader is, is uh, it's kind of hard one and you're relieved to, to get there. Anybody else? Yeah. Well, it took me several years, and um, well, I was going through a lot of grief myself at, at the time, and it all got kind of funneled into this book. I, I had recently been divorced and moved to back to Oregon, um, and. Uh, and for the first time in my life, I didn't have a child in the house. <laughs> I mean, the first time in my adult life. Um, like in 28 years, I was suddenly an empty nester. And um, so everything I knew that my life to be was suddenly just cut off and removed. Um, and then I developed a lot of health problems that went on and on and on and um, that were really debilitating. So. Um, the entire, that's part of why this novel was so hard one to get this work finished because I was fighting against so many different things and 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 so for me it was sort of like I was living through a, different kinds of grief um, as I was giving this to my characters to, to deal with and I, um, and so it took several years to write and um, um, and it came in bits and pieces. I mean, I literally would have like, you know, three hours in one week would be like all, I mean, I'm used to, I work a lot. I write long hours and um, I couldn't do that with uh, all of the uh, vertigo and migraines that I was having. So I had to um, take it 
take the work whenever I could get it. And I mean, at one point I was even like closing an eye and trying to see through one eye at my computer because I was so determined to write. Um, and really the book became, became the thing that kind of got me through that. I had this. I had these characters and they had problems and they needed help, <laughs> um, you know, solving them. And so that's where I came in. I, I um, was sort of their caretaker for those years and that helped tremendously. Anyone else? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, because I didn't really know until I was much, until I was quite far along in the book why, why he committed suicide. I mean, I knew there were some mental health issues, which often go hand in hand with um, drinking and, you know, uh, just a, so many other problems that... Um, people experience, but I didn't know in particular what his issues were um, or what was the triggering point. Why did he... It's funny because I knew that he said that line to her for some reason, but I didn't know why he said it. I mean, it's funny how novels and stories will come in pieces like that, you know, but he said that line, I hope you live long enough to regret what you've done, and I thought, what on earth could a seven-year-old have done, and why did he do... But I just knew that that was, like, part of the story. Um, but, yeah, he's... Um, I'm, I'm really, really glad to hear that, because by the book's end, you, you do learn... Um, hopefully everything that you wanted to know about him. And the mother too, you know, I didn't mention the, the mother's missing in the story and you, you learn um, bit by bit what happened to her as well. But I think, you know, I was trying to mimic the way that we, we, um, we stuff things away and every now and then something happens and we're forced to remember it and that's kind of what's happening to these two characters where they've got a lot of stuff over a lifetime that they've been um, not wanting to address and um, and so bit by bit it comes up in the novel it's slowly revealed until it's all it's all bubbling up to the to the surface Anyone else? Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> well, you know my family. <laughs> um, I, you know, I I grew up with some heavy drinkers. Um, uh, alcoholics in varying varying stages of their um, their alcoholism, and um, um, so it wasn't. Um, it's not something that I have a, a problem with personally, but um, m most everyone in my the family where I came from um, does, and um, pretty severely. So I've seen I've seen things. <laughs> Yeah. 
Anybody else? Well, thank you all for coming, and I'll be signing books um, if you have one. And um, I'm not sure where that, where I'll be doing that. Dylan, where will I? Where do I? Oh, right, oh, right here. Okay, it's happening right here. Okay, thank you, thank you all very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.